Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. We just rock and roll, so thanks Great. so much for meeting me to do this. My I'm pleasure. in the middle of a, a world premiere week, which is a, a whirlwind. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, let's, let's dive right into it. I'd, for some of the people who don't know you, I'd like to get just a little bit, a touch of the background. I mean, you've been all over the place and worked with young artist programs all over and, and coached a bunch as well. And now you're running an opera company, but uh, let's... We're not running a company. Well, you, I should say <laughs> head of music for a company. Yeah, which sure, is, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yes, let's, let's, let's make that a little more clear. Um, but let, let's go back. I mean, you started out, uh, did you start out with collaborative piano and that was the direction you started to take? Yeah. Um, so originally as I was growing up as a musician and playing the piano and uh, figuring out what I wanted to do in the music world, um, through high school I thought I wanted to be a high school choir director mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Um, had great uh, choir and band teacher in high school and I wanted to do what they did the way they they brought music to our small community and at a really high level uh, we were a competitive marching band um, we um, were encouraged to audition for um, district chorus and the regional honor ensembles um, but I also loved playing piano and was looking at schools that would be uh, piano performance and music education mm -hmm. um, which ultimately I ended up choosing Ithaca College for my undergrad. Okay. Um, to do a four and a, what would be a four and a half year program in performance and education. I ended up cramming it into four and getting it done in four. Um, but I had the never opposite direction from what most musicians <laughs> yeah, are yeah. doing. <laughs> I, I shrunk it. I was like, I'm getting this thing done. Um, but I hadn't seen an opera before um, going to college, actually. We grew up going to the Pittsburgh Symphony, uh, saw so many great soloists there as a kid. Um, but we just didn't go to the opera. My parents didn't know it at all. Um, I get to Ithaca College in my first week, and I'm starting to make friends with a bunch of singers at school, and they're all saying, I need a pianist for my voice lesson. Are you interested <laughs> in doing that? I said, that sounds cool. I'll do that. And by the end of my second week of my freshman year, I was playing for six singers Yeah. Um, in their voice lesson every week, and we we're finding time to rehearse their rep. Um, and then it wasn't until the spring that I saw my first opera production there. It was a Deflator Mouse. Um, and I did uh, musical theater in high school, playing for the productions. I even was in something. I forget which one. Um, so I, I got the whole idea of um, music on stage or music drama, um, but didn't know it in the operatic, uh, more classical sense. And seeing that production and the way everything came together just made sense to me, and I fell in love with it. Uh, my junior year, um, Patrick Hansen, um, who was the opera and musical theater conductor at Ithaca at the time, um, heard me playing a bunch of auditions for the, the opera that year and asked if I wanted to play. And that's how I got uh, my first experience um, with uh, Patrick conducting. It was uh, Minotti's The Consul mm -hmm. in my junior year. And Patrick just made it really clear for me in um, really the first week of rehearsals what's expected of an opera pianist. And it all made sense to me, even though I didn't know much about opera or the opera world. I didn't know anything about the opera world. I just saw this as a cool opportunity in school. Um, and as I'm finishing my junior year and moving into my senior year, um, faculty there are saying, you know that you could look at graduate school for a collaborative piano. 
I go, what's that? Uh, <laughs> not having any idea that um, there's potential careers in this. I mean, I knew there were opera companies, and I knew um, they need pianists, but I didn't really know anything about what that would be. Um, so I applied to a few schools, um, ended up applying to Cincinnati Conservatory, and I got in there for a collaborative piano master's program. And out of college, I worked a summer at the Ashland Opera Festival, mm -hmm. um, which is now, I guess, Charlottesville Opera. Um, Brian Damaris um, was the music director at the time. He had gone to my undergrad. He had studied with my same piano teacher. We didn't overlap there. Um, but he offered me my first job as an apprentice pianist. Um, and that was my first taste of working at an opera company, working in uh, repertoire with two pieces happening at the same time, um, coaching singers, playing for auditions, all of, all of that. And that was my first really terrific introduction. Got to do a lot that summer. Um, and then Cincinnati, it all kind of came together into really looking like a job possibility. Mm -hmm. um, and the level of singing is so high at CCM. I got to play for great singers with great voice teachers. Uh, the production level was so high, I got to do two productions a year there as part of my assistantship. And it just kind of propelled from there. Um, went to the Marilla program, um, which was an incredible learning experience for me. And out of that, uh, very grateful to be offered the Adler Fellowship at San Francisco Opera. And that's where I caught up on my language work, which I didn't really have yeah. <laughs> uh, through my performance degree. Um, we had a month of Italian every day. We had a month of French every day. We had a month of German every day. We had a couple weeks of Russian in there too. And that's where um, I really got caught up there. And working with that music staff and the kinds of singers that are cast at San Francisco Opera, it's such a high level. Um, really, really established myself into thinking this is what I want to do, but not yet thinking about what is ahead of music or um, running a young artist program. Um, certainly there were those people that did that there. Yeah. Um, but the more that I was working <coughs> with my colleagues uh, in the program and learning more about the ins and outs of an opera company, that made sense to me too. Um, the organizational side of it all. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I don't mind keeping up with my emails and, <laughs> and figuring out how to program the concert or how to get everything um, prepared in time for what we're going to do. Um, so it was just really a natural progression of, oh, this makes sense to me. I think I could do this. Yeah. And giving it a shot and people giving me the opportunities to do it. Yeah. But it's funny how now we actually see that that's a, a legitimate um, occupation. And there's real training for it. And, right. um, and there's, there's so many more programs and opportunities for pianists yeah. now than there were even five, 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I started my undergrad in, 98 um, yeah and it wasn't it wasn't even remotely on the radar right not even close and they were still calling many of the programs accompanying at that yes. point it wasn't, yes, it wasn't collaborative piano yet but as it, I mean any good team of singer and pianist can tell you it is truly collaborative absolutely like it is not oh, I'm just following along no it's it's a team exercise <laughs> no I, I encourage um, pianists to call themselves a pianist, not an accompanist, mm -hmm. um, and secondarily a coach. You are a pianist because that's how you are supporting supporting the singer or the ensemble or the chamber music, whatever you're doing. Yeah. And then there's also the element of coaching with it, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you kind of, you kind of were, were drawn 
almost almost it seems um, naturally towards working with growing singers. I mean, along with working with obviously um, excellent professionals along the way, um, but you've you've maintained working with young artists. Um, is that do you do you enjoy the uh, the coaching aspect, the ability to build up the next generation of artists? What is it for you that that keeps you with young artist programs? I still find that even though I am not a high school choir director, that I'm an educator first. Mm -hmm. That's something that's always been a priority for me, and um, teaching skills and teaching folks how to do the job. Um, is something I really enjoy doing. And even though I'm not in front of a choir in a public school, I'm using that education degree every day as I'm working with each individual and finding um, the way to work that helps that person learn. Mm -hmm. And if that person isn't figuring it out, I really take it upon myself. Like, why, why is this unclear? What can I do in a different way, um, whether it's a kinesthetic approach or a visual approach or how, however we're looking at the music, um, really learning how somebody else learns. Um, and through that, I feel like I'm growing as a, as a teacher all of the time, mm -hmm. finding new ways to look at the same things. Because we spend a lot of time with the same arias or the same operas, especially in the traditional canon. Um, and I find I'm never bored with that. Um, there's so much to learn about how this individual artist in front of me in a coaching or in a production is going to do it because it's their performance. Mm -hmm. um, we can look to tradition, we can look to various ways of doing things, but I love finding how do you do it? How do you tell that story the best way? How do you sing it um, most healthily? Um, how do you absorb the style? Any number of things along the way. I love that you, you said that, how do you tell the story? I see so many young singers who are put into kind of a, a cookie cutter. This is the way we do this. And if you stray from that, you're wrong. Whereas everybody's gonna act a little bit differently. They're gonna portray a character slightly different. They're gonna bring something else to it, whether it's from their past or how they feel the connection to the character. And that should come out in the storytelling. I mean, I'm not saying you radically change the <coughs> You don't change the dynamics, the counting, the the melody, that kind of stuff. But you know how you portray it is should be personalized, very Absolutely. personalized. I love addressing with folks what's objective and what's subjective. Yes. You know there are some things where you have to keep this bar in time because you are doubled by the bassoon, <laughs> right. and you have to sing together <laughs> with the bassoon. Otherwise, you're going to sound like you're making a mistake. But then there's plenty of other opportunities, of course, for interpretation, um, whether it's ornamentation or appoggiaturas or um, cadenzas or, or also just the way that you dynamically color something. There, yeah. There are things that have to be certain ways, and then there's plenty of things that don't have to be. Yeah. Um, but making sure that there's a clear delineation of what's objective and what's subjective. Absolutely. So you did <clears throat> Glimmerglass. And then you also have this um, at Minnesota Opera. What do you, how do you treat the two differently when you have a full season and when you have kind of a, a, a truncated season? Sure. Uh, so I'm doing work for both companies all year long. Mm -hmm. um, you know, last night after the dress rehearsal, I was actually working on the program for a concert at Glimmerglass this summer that we nice. had to get together pretty soon. Um, so there's work for both all year. Of course, there's less for Glimmerglass through the season. And similarly, there's less for Minnesota when I'm 
in upstate New York in the summer. Um, but I, I, I treat both jobs very differently, as they are very different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at the programs, it's a much smaller resident artist program here. We have anywhere from five to eight singers any given year, um, two pianists and a director. Um, whereas at Gomer Glass, we've got 40 to 45 singers <laughs> and um, uh, what, two or three pianists, three or four directors, two conductors, and that's all in repert uh, repertory where here we're doing things one at a time. Right. Um, so it's very different mindsets, but also looking for high quality and ways to teach and ways to help each artist grow. and in the different environments that each company is. What's your schedule for Glimmer Glass? I am there um, for about 13 weeks in the summer. I get there three or four days before the Young Artist Singers get okay. there, so just before Memorial Day. And then I leave a day or two after the artists leave. Um, and then as soon as we're done there, we're pre-screening applications for the <laughs> next round of auditions. Of course. You know, that deadline is usually September 1st or so, um, sometimes a little bit earlier than that. I spend September, as we're starting the season here in Minnesota, um, I go home at night and spend my time on Yap Tracker going through <laughs> all of the applications for the next year to determine who will hear live. And then I'm gone about half of October from here uh, so we are in rehearsals and performances here, but I make sure everything's covered here. Um, traveling for those auditions, and all the while while I'm traveling for those auditions, I'm pre-screening for Minnesota, because I've got two uh, applicant pools to go through each year. Um, and then we get those glimmer glass offers out, and then it's time to hit the road again. You just go, go, go. I do, and then hit the road again for the Minnesota auditions. What I, what I do like about the opportunity to work at both companies and do that um, audition and application process for both yeah. is tracking uh, tr tracking young singers and tracking young pianists and conductors and directors and seeing how they grow from audition to audition, particularly within a fall um, when folks are still in the in their formative training. Things can change very quickly. Mm -hmm and seeing how somebody's audition can change in October to December mm. can be vast, mm -hmm. whether it's a change of repertoire or a, a technical breakthrough or whatever that is. Um, it's amazing seeing how people can grow so quickly yeah. in two months and also seeing people in different lights because we're looking for different things in the different companies. There's True. different um, assignments to fill. Um, and while we're looking for the highest level of talent for both companies, if um, you're not the right fach for the role that we need to fill, um, we can make note that we loved your audition, we hope to hear you again, but we also have to focus our attention in a different way right. um, to make sure that we fill the assignments at the highest level as well. Yeah. Um, so there's somebody that you can see that you absolutely wish that you could have offered something for Glimmer Glass, but you didn't have something, and then they turn up again for Minnesota, and they're everything that you hope and dream that you'll have yeah. um, in your program for the next year. It's funny, I mean, that just goes to show again and again how much the audition process, <clears throat> you have specific things that you need to do and you need to fill for an audition process, and why if a singer doesn't necessarily get a spot that they want for any program, company, or whatever, 
it may not necessarily be that performance. It may not have been their audition. Right. It may just be that you had other things that you needed to fill and they just weren't a good fit. It's nothing against their performance Absolutely. or their audition. Um, it's I, the opportunity has to be as beneficial for the artist as it is for the company. Absolutely. Yes, that's perfectly put. Um, <clears throat> you, made, you made a comment about how you kind of track singers both you know, through the audition process and multiple audition processes. You know, opera's changed quite a bit in this digital age, the, inf the information mm -hmm. age. Um, what grabs your attention with a singer? Absolutely. And helps you track a singer as well? Sure. Uh, when it comes to that application process, we, we get about double the number of applications as slots we have available to hear auditions. Just sounds pretty standard. So you know, for Glimmerglass, for instance, we get close to 1,000 applications each year, and we can hear between 400 and 500 people live each mm -hmm. year. Um, so what comes in the application needs to be as slick and accurate and honest as possible. Um, when it comes to recorded media, whether it's audio or video, which we allow either as an option, we want a two, two contrasting selections. Um, I want it to be absolutely representative of what you would sound like if I heard you in a room. Now, of course, I've got headphones on or my computer <laughs> speakers, um, but I want it to be a good quality. It doesn't, that doesn't have to be a huge investment. It can be. It can be a small investment, too. If you're spending a lot of money on it, it better be worth it. <laughs> if you're not spending a lot of money on it, then it better be representative. Um, I want to be able to hear the text. I want to hear, um, hear a dynamic range. And um, I don't want it to sound like you're a, a million miles away. Um, and if you're going to do video, which I love video, I love um, Honestly, that there's less opportunities to cut apart a video because yes, of video. Absolutely. <laughs> there really aren't opportunities to cut apart a video. Um, I love seeing that visceral live performance. Yeah. Um, make sure that you've watched it and listened to it before you submit it. I, it's so, it seems so obvious, but there's so many times where I get things where that clearly hasn't happened, um, where there's still a, st a conversation at the beginning or at the end or whatever <laughs> it is. I mean. At, and that immediately makes me wonder if I can trust you to come work at my company or work in the program for the year. Um, so as long as, as long as wh however you present that recording sounds good on any number of speakers, you know, listen on various headphones, uh -huh. and various computers, um, then that, that's good for me. Yeah. I, you hit a, a key point of the dynamic range, and there's a big difference when you, because I've seen this, but I do these audition videos for people. Sure. I've worked with opera singers for, I've been doing this with opera singers for years and years, and there's a difference in classical music with a dynamic range than there is with, say, rock music or pop music, which sure. is over-compressed, everything's roughly the same volume, right. you don't have the dynamic range, and so when you're choosing your tech, or choosing your producer, they have to know that it's okay to have a little white noise if you're still going to get the audio at the at the at the low end Absolutely. without peaking everything at the top end. Right. Um, because I, ha I have occasionally had clients that'll say, "Well, it seems a little quiet." I'm like, "You didn't get to the loud part yet." Like, yeah. I, we know where you're going to go with this, 
I can't, I can't peek out the mics over here, you know, they, they, and they need to hear that range because I could compress it the hell out of it like everything else. Sure. But that's not what you want to hear. That's not what anybody wants to hear in a live performance right. either. Yeah, I don't want a performance that all sounds mezzo piano, mezzo forte in yeah. between. I want, I want the full range because these characters singing these arias are usually in very heightened states on the greatest or worst day of their life. <laughs> or at least yes. the greatest or the, you know, the worst part of the day or the best part of the day. Um, so there are extremes. I want to hear extremes. But I also want it not to clip the mic, and I also want to still be able to hear the soft, <laughs> right, too. <laughs> right. It's a delicate balance. It's a fine line to walk. Absolutely. Um, so and um, then for headshot, I just want it to look like the person. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't grant auditions based on photos. I really don't look at the photo. I, I look at the resume, and I take a look at the video or listen to the audio. That's, yeah. um, but you're gonna need that photo, so make sure it looks like you. I send out a questionnaire. I started doing this probably four or five years ago. I send out questionnaires to casting directors and management and conductors and people they're gonna be working with predominantly younger singers. Yeah. And just ask them, what are you looking for media-wise from singers this year? Like, mm -hmm. what do you wanna see? And every year, it's been a super basic answer. It's been that right there. It's like, I want them to, I want them to look like them yeah. and be like them so that when I watch their material or I see that headshot, when they walk in the room, I can be like, oh yeah, it's the same person. Absolutely. That's it. That's, it doesn't have to be this super glam thing. It doesn't have to be over the top. It doesn't have to be this massive, you know, epic budget. Cause I mean, we all know that you can spend, you know, two grand on headshots alone Absolutely. in any major city if you really want if to. If you want but to. You don't have to spend more than what makes you look like you and, yeah. you know, is a good representation of who you are and, you know, looks professional yeah. rather than just being, you know. I'm, my major pet peeves are the ivy wall and the brick wall. I, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just anything else. Just give me a solid white background. And right. I'm happier with that. <laughs> um, so audition, you, you see uh, thousands or hundreds to thousands of singers a year. Yeah. Um, audition tips. Hmm. Or ridiculous stuff you've seen in auditions. <laughs> I mean, surely I've seen all sides of the thing that is auditioning. It's, uh, um, it's a courageous thing that artists have to do. Come in and present what you do and be convincing and confident. And um, it's, we, we want everybody to come in and be their best self for us. And we want to garner information in that time that we can trust somebody to come work at our company, be in our program, and do the job effectively. Um, walk in with confidence. Really have rehearsed what your material. Um, know it inside and out. There's your preparation is completely in your control. There are so many things in life and in our work that are out of our control. Mm -hmm. The one thing that is completely in control is preparation. Mm -hmm. um, how's your binder look for your pianist? Is everything clear? Are, have you coached and studied everything in a way where you, you can sing it on your worst day? Of course, don't 
do an audition if you're terribly sick either. Um, but um, we've all had those auditions that the, er, where the, you know we flew in and our plane was delayed five hours, and so we got in at two a.m. instead of you know ten p.m. Didn't sleep a whole lot. Had to sing at ten a.m. Right. You know, technique. You've <laughs> got to have a technique um, that will sustain you through the day you wake up not feeling great, the time that your sublet is a terribly uncomfortable bed, um, or running late because the train had an issue, whatever it is, there's going to be so many things that get in our way. And can your preparation and your technique, and I like to say that technique is not just how these two folds come together in our throat, but it's how you learn your music, how you study your music, um, how you create your routine. Mm -hmm. Um, for your health and for your performance. Yeah. That's technique. That's yeah. all technique. It's not what so often is the 30 minutes at the beginning of your voice lesson. Yeah. It's how you do the entirety of the job. That is technique. Um, come in with confidence. Introduce yourself with confidence. Breathe and sing. And present in a way where we know that you know what you're saying, where the story is clear and that it's something you enjoy singing and that it's something that's appropriate for you to be singing. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to make sure that you don't give everything you have in those 10 minutes. Mm. If, if we go with the, the thought that you are enough, um, which is uh, something we say in an encouraging way to anybody as a human being, that you are enough. Um, that if you are unable to sing a piece after your first piece, sing it well and healthily and adjust to what's going to be different because let's be honest, the panel is going to ask for something usually that is contrasting right. in style, dynamic, and range. Um, that is what's likely to happen when you sing a role. You're going to have all kinds of moments in a role. You're going to have soft moments. You're going to have loud moments. You're going to have sustained sections. You're going to have coloratura sections, whatever it is, that you have rehearsed in a way and built your technical facility in a way that you can easily go between selections mm -hmm. and be ready for whatever the second thing is. There may be a third thing. There may be a fourth thing. Um, and we want, of course, we want to be wowed. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it's making sure that you do do justice and diligence to whatever it is yeah. um, that is sustainable and convincing. Um, if you s give us all of your guts on your first piece and then there's nothing left on the second piece, then I'm concerned that I can't trust you to last through a six hour rehearsal day yeah. or through a 13 week summer festival or a nine month program. Right. Um, and gosh, I hope that anybody I hire is able to sing as long as they want to sing. Yes. In however long in their life they want to do that. Yeah. Um, so set that up from the beginning in how you audition. Yeah. It also goes to show why you, when you're writing the, uh, the outlines, the, what are the, the requirements for an audition application, why you list contrasting arias. 
yeah. is that right there? And still, you still see some people who don't have contrasting arias in their packet. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, so you do this thing really well. We asked for a little bit of a range so we could kind of see what your range is. And if you don't offer that from the get-go, how am I supposed to know? Absolutely. At a certain point, there may come a time where you as an artist will sing the same four or five roles all year long. Um, but as part of the gig, as it were, as a young artist, you're going to be doing a wide range of things, from chorus to small roles to big roles, in different languages and different styles. And at this entry point into the career, um, it's figuring out how to be able to operate, as it were, in, <laughs> in all of those worlds. And it is definitely jarring. Um, and we've got to figure out how to do that and do yeah. it effectively. Yeah. So now you are the head of music for Minnesota Opera. Um, not a small role by any means. Um, a lot of responsibilities behind it. What are some of the challenges of this position of, I mean, we're, we're kind of past that economic downturn that, that you know, kicked the, kicked the support out from a bunch of opera companies in the early 2000s. And we're now well into the 21st century. And you know, what, what are some of the challenges of, of dealing with a, a significant opera company and putting on shows with a, a real budget um, in this time frame, in this day and age, 2019? I think the farther that we get away from the years of the European migration um, to the United States, where they brought opera with them mm -hmm. and wanted opera to be as part of the culture and continue the traditional canon, um, the farther we get away from that generation, uh, the more work we need to do an education of introducing the, the great classic works um, to a new generation of American-born individuals and why these pieces are great and why um, there's relevancy in many of the stories still, mm -hmm. but also continuing to feed our own canon. I think this is a great time both in the large, um, the larger A house companies as well as regional companies at all levels. There's so m many new works being created and not every opera of Verdi or Donizetti we do now. Um, there are so many operas of those periods at Mozart, all the great composers that we don't do anymore that may have had uh, a relevancy or a poignancy at that time, but certain ones have stuck for various reasons. If we don't create a vast body of work now, there won't be anything to stick around in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, some things will have a life, some things <laughs> won't. Um, we won't always know why that is the case. Um, but the more that we can be telling stories that are, are new and related to the individual communities that we serve, um, that address a wide variety of perspectives, um, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, um, that we're the more we can be telling stories of all people on our stages, um, I think the easier it will be for this world to come together yeah. and um, for us to bring people into these sacred spaces that are theaters or opera houses 
uh, to bring people away from their smartphones and their televisions and their iPads to experience something live and visceral. Yeah. Um, and to be human together. Um, we want that all done at a very high level, of course, and that will also encourage people to come in and be part of what we're doing. Um, but we can't just rely on the greatness of opera or the traditional <laughs> canon, yeah. uh, the top 10 operas um, to, to fill the seats. And it's not even about filling seats. It's about how, how do we tell these stories in a way um, that make people go home and think about how they live their lives. Yeah. Um, I think opera is relevant. It's the most... Um, multi-dimensional art form there is with with singing and orchestra and lighting and tech and costume and everything that goes into to it it's multimedia um, it's just not on a screen in front of our face like we live so much of our lives <laughs> um, and opera has the power to do that and the sooner we can introduce that into people's lives the better let's talk about new music real quick we're two days away from the world premiere of the fix um, how did that, uh, how did that particular project pop up on your radar? How did that, how did that come about to be one of the, the shows that you guys chose for this year? Sure. So th that process all preceded my time with yeah. the company here. I think five years ago, five or six years ago now is about the first time that discussions were being uh, brewed about mm -hmm. for this idea with, um, this team of Joel Puckett and Eric Simonson. Um, in discussion with um, our now creative advisor, but at the time artistic director, Dale Johnson, mm -hmm. um, who's overseen the birth of so many new works here. That's um, been such an important part of the heritage here. Um, but my part coming into the process, um, my first week on the job uh, was the first workshop for the piece. Um, so I, all I knew is that this was a piece that the company had committed to, and I was given the score shortly before arriving, and we workshopped Act One in my first week. Um, and seeing how Minnesota Opera has historically done a workshop process, um, seeing the way that Dale would work with the team on um, deciding what works and what might need a tweak, and how the singers and the music staff are part of the process of growing the piece together. Then at the end of my first season, uh, we did a workshop of Act Two. Uh, we're now in my second season here at the company, and in the fall we had an orchestra workshop um, where Joel had mostly orchestrated the piece. There were some things that um, didn't get finished until this round of performance time, um, but to see how that sound world works together, and that is just so important for everybody to experience what the actual sound world will be. We can only do so much on the piano, and right. God knows as a vocal coach, I spend so much time pretending to be something else, <laughs> pretending to be an orchestra, <laughs> pretending to be an oboe, pretending to be um, a string section. Um, but now the, the, everything coming together, you know, seeing my year and a half of work coming together, but then also the five years of work building up to it. Um, from big scale things to does this scene work? Do we need to change something in the scene or the order of it? Um, 
to the minutia of the double bass is their score has a C natural and the bassoon has a C sharp. Which note is right? right. And everything in between. <laughs> um, or to finding out in the staging process that, oh, this transition's going to take more time than we thought it was going to, or this set piece needs more time to move. Um, so we've been <clears> adding <throat> music in some spots or cutting music in others. So it's the piece is still um, still in its birthing process, as it were. And you know, we'll set a version tonight for our opening this weekend. But who knows, there may be changes after that. It's one of the things I love about working with new music. And I always recommend if a singer or an instrumentalist or and whoever can get involved with, an, a, with new music, whether it's a, a small chamber piece or a full-blown full opera, um, get involved because that process is unlike anything else. Absolutely. And you see this phenomenal evolution of a project, a project that sometimes is really slow Yes. And sometimes it's just a snowball pushed right off the edge of a cliff. And right. you're like, you're like, oh, I thought this was going to be kind of a smoother. No, oh, we're here. Okay. Um, and then even after the premiere, it still has a life. It's still little things are tweaked, little things are changed. Absolutely. Um, and it's not until after many, many performances that there's kind of a, a routine with a show. Right. And or a tradition. A tradition. That's yeah. <laughs> but that tra tradition is created. Yeah. just out of the process alone, right? which is also something wild to be a part of. Yeah. Like, oh, I was there for this premiere of this. I was in this particular cast, you know, the third time the show was done, and we made these changes, made those changes, and these things were solidified. Um, that and being able to work with uh, living composers yes. is also a huge thing. Having Joel and Eric in the room is just so wonderful. and. And we have Eric's double perspective here because he's the librettist and the director for the piece. Um, so there's, I guess, one less person to go through <laughs> for those decisions. You know, he can work through those with Joel um, and with her in collaboration with our uh, conductor, Tim Myers, for this. Eric and Joel have so many wonderful ideas for this piece. And um, it's not until the ideas are out just outside of their head and in the human beings that will be portraying these roles and singing these notes um, and living, living these characters, um, do they get to really see whether what their idea was works or not? Right. And they've been so wonderfully collaborative through the process because they want it to work. Um, and we want it to work too. And it's been a joy bouncing things back and forth, whether it's, do we change this word to be that? Um, do we cut out the bassoon playing this here? Do we change this articulation to bring this moment to life in a different way? There's so many different ways um, on the underbelly of it all to make it come off the page. And so much of my responsibility as head of music um, is not only preparing the singers and making sure that they know their music well and that they're comfortable and that everything's working there, but that the materials that we leave behind reflect what we think is the best way to tell this story yeah. and to sing this story and to have it played and performed. Um, that our articulation markings and um, our sp to, down to our spellings, to you know, every, every <laughs> aspect of it. Um, or as a vocal coach, that the piano vocal score best reflects what the singers will hear from the orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly we had the piano workshops before the orchestra workshops. So right. Joel can be imagining what he's going to orchestrate. Um, 
but it's not until he really sits down and writing for those, those winds and those brass and the strings and the great percussion writing we have in this piece too, um, does he really know what that will be. So now we've been doing a lot of work on our music staff looking at that orchestra score and going through what he had originally envisioned in the piano score and it's like, you know, Joel, this, this bar doesn't match up anymore. And that's okay. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, this is what you want. Or, oh, Sibelius made, or whatever software, made an error, and it's actually supposed to be what it was in the piano score. So having Joel here to go through and talk through all of those um, minute details along the way, hopefully we will leave behind uh, for the publisher and then future performances of this the most accurate representation of what we want the piece to be. Yeah. It's fun to pr perform pieces that are 200 plus years old, but I always found it invigorating to work on something right from the get-go. Absolutely. Right from the very beginning. And it's, I'm really glad that you guys do have such a tradition of launching new pieces and doing world premieres and that kind of thing. Out of the hundreds of operas that we know, how many thousands were done that are no longer done? Sure. And if we want to perpetuate new music, we have to be putting on as many as possible. And now we don't know that they're all going to be gold right from the get-go. But if we don't try, it's it, just going to disappear. It's no different than the movie industry. Yeah. It's no different than television series. It's, it's the same thing. Yep. And we can go back and watch The Wizard of Oz. We can watch Gone with the Wind. Any of those, the Hitchcock films, whatever they are. Yeah. We're not watching every single one of those still. Right. We've got to keep creating um, and create for now. Yeah. And then we'll see what sticks. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly and it. And if it doesn't stick, that might be okay. And right. if it does stick, that's great too. Right. But let's, um, let's live to our fullest now and create with the people that we are living on this planet with. Yeah. It's a great spot to end right there. I know you're super busy, so we've got to wrap up. Um, but that's wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Having this conversation. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with two interview episodes and two social media soundbites each month. You can find me directly on Instagram at the beard and lens, and the podcast Instagram is at operabiz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz podcast.